Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to Transit Voices. And this month, we are travelling through time. We are future gazing and figuring out what on earth our cities are going to look like once the new urbanists are in charge. With our guest this month, Jerome Horn, one of the new blood who, mainly on Twitter and some of the other social media channels, is really showing the new ideas and new drive behind how our cities and our transit should be designed. How are we going to design and make our cities work for humans instead of cars? Let's find out now. Now, let's get talking. So welcome, Jerome Horn. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. I've been such a long-term follower and admirer of you, mostly on Twitter. The young urbanists have really kind of made it their own, more than I think some of the other social media platforms. But you are someone who has been sort of long-term in transit, not only transit advocacy in your uh, spare time, in your in your kind of private life, but also in, in, in your roles. But uh, it would be great just to have a, a quick intro to how you got into transit and what you've what you've been getting involved in. Yes. Well, thank you, Ben, for having me on the show. Delighted to be here and have this conversation. People often ask me, you know, please, you know, describe yourself. And, you know, say I'm a quintessential transit nerd, but also a transit professional and someone who really cares about mobility and how that gives people access to opportunity. And, you know, everything we do in, in the transit mobility space can make or break that for people. How did I get involved with transit? Well, it's sort of always been a fascination from the time that I was a little kid. When I was younger, I was playing with model train sets, maybe watched uh, Thomas the Tank Engine. My dad gave me an early copy of the game Sim City. And so, you know, there was a fascination there. And uh, I always tell this story when I was 10 years old, and this is in Baltimore, originally from Baltimore. Uh, at age 10, I wrote an email to the CEO of the transit system in Baltimore, asking him, how can I get your job when I grow up? So at age 10, I was already thinking, oh, I want to be a transit CEO. Most 10-year-olds, <laughs> that's, that's not something that comes across. And so maybe it was fate or destiny from that point. But you know, I took a little bit of a roundabout path and decided to pursue a degree in music and kind of pursue that area. But I found my way into transit eventually. And it's been a very rewarding, fascinating career ever since then. That's amazing. Well, we've had people on the show before who as kids have written in with various questions to subway and railroad and bus operators, but actually writing about, you know, what's the path to become a transit CEO? That's a level of vision into what you want to do that I've not seen before. But it's certainly something where I've seen industries which have been suffering that when they've had all of the expertise age out and they've not been training the next generation, you you get really concerned. And one of the great things about transit at the moment is I'm filled with enormous amounts of hope and optimism because the the new blood coming into the industry is bringing a new vigor, a new take. They're not just repeating and capturing the learning from previous generations, but they're turning it on its head. I'm wondering, you know, with with you and you, you you're you're part of this sort of new new vision coming in. Where can we take this forward if we assume that? Not only the transit CEOs are within the next 10 years, 15 years, going to start being represented by people from the new urbanists, but also the city planning, but also the city investment and new town planning, and also 
our laws around highway safety, our laws around vehicle safety and vehicle usage and vehicle pricing. If we look at uh, all of that and run that forward, what's going to change in the city? What are we going to see if we roll that forward? And and what do you think are going to be the most pivotal new approaches, changes or legislation that will lead to that new city? Oh, that's a broad question. <laughs> There's a lot to cover. It is encouraging. We are seeing more focus on sort of urbanists or the rise of urbanism, or even just the concept of a walkable place, take more mainstream. And I think at its core, that's really what we're talking about is people, regardless of demographic, social ideology, even political positioning, a lot of people just like to go to a place where they can walk. This is really key to the future. And how do we figure out how to, as you said, orient cities around humans? I've heard this quote that says, you know, people talk about neighborhood character, but the neighborhood character really makes that up is the people that are in the neighborhood, right? Cities tend to be, not always, but you know, cities tend to be places where you can have more sort of diverse cluster of different kinds of people living near or in close proximity to people. One of the things that's really encouraging that we're seeing across several cities is we're beginning to rethink parking. Parking is like really sort of the biggest battle I think that's happening everywhere because it's like, oh, there's this prime space on the street. Some individuals think that, oh, I'm entitled to you know a public parking spot on a street or businesses will think, oh my God, if I don't have those three prime parking spots in front of my door, no one's going to come visit me. But I think we're going to see that that's not true. We're seeing cities shut down streets. You know, During the pandemic, there was an experiment with what we called open streets or slow streets where car traffic was restricted. It was amazing to see streets kind of retake on their original purpose. There were places where people were gathering, right? Everyone loves to show on social media these photos of, you know, so-and-so city from 1920, 1930, and you see like, you know, or even before that turn of the century, you see like streetcars and maybe some horses and bicycles and people all running through the streets, multiple modes, vendors on the streets. And it's it was fascinating when this sort of, you know, concept came back up during the pandemic because I was like, no, that's really kind of what it used to be like. And so... I think you know more cities experimented with that. We're beginning to see some of those closed streets or open streets become permanent or become regular. You know, like every weekend, this is happening, and people are reconnecting with their neighborhood. They're learning more about different businesses and services that could be there, and they're just learning about how they can get involved in their community. So I think that's one policy and one sort of thing that I'd love to see move forward. Is we really think about: Do we need to allocate? this street space to so much parking? Or can we give that space back to allow more room for people to naturally congregate? Cities are taking it even further by getting to the point where we're going, okay, we don't need as much parking, right? How can we make it easier for developers to build, right? By getting rid of these parking minimums. We've seen different studies that show like downtown areas of cities and how much of that land space is, you know, for cars. And, you know, sometimes it's as much as 20 to a quarter of the amount of space. That's not even just downtown, but land use in general, we're seeing, you know, all this space that has been dedicated to cars that, as you said, could be unlocked. And you actually really hit on two other main priorities that we're seeing change, which is when we talk about safety, it is no mystery that we have had a record number of pedestrian deaths in the United States in particular, and it, it's at sort of a 40-year high uh, because we have these streets that were designed for cars, that were widened, You know, these one-way arterials are just 
wide arterials with high speed limits and very poor or no pedestrian infrastructure. And particularly, this is really impacting a lot of people, particularly lower income black and brown people who maybe can't afford a car, who are in, you know, having to get to places where they're trying to get to work or to school, and they're having to cross these dangerous roads that do not have supportive infrastructure for pedestrians. And so by redesigning our streets and rethinking, you know, we're able to make these streets safer, right? And and being able to think about how do we accommodate all the types of people that utilize a street and who and what is a street for? I have to talk about highways. That's another thing that we're seeing some progress or at least some encouraging news around is that there are people beginning to rethink, well, do we need these highways You know, that came into downtown and have cut neighborhoods off, displaced yeah. different communities, destroyed whole vibrant communities, once again, many of which were low-income black and brown communities and cities. And I think that's encouraging that we are beginning to have the right conversations now. We're acknowledging some of the mistakes of the past highway system And we're even beginning to see funding through the Reconnecting Communities grants, which are some grants coming out of the infrastructure bill passed here. We're beginning to see action looking at how can we repurpose these? Can we decommission? Can we tear down these highways? And then what do we do with that new land? Talking about from a standpoint of equity, you know, how do we make sure that we're not just incentivizing new development and reinvigoration of areas, but how do we think about keeping people who currently live in those areas still able to enjoy and live in those areas too? Because the worst thing that can happen, right, is there's always uh, a talk about uh, gentrification. And that's a really kind of like sticky point that I think for cities in general, as we're reinventing our cities, as we're trying to reinvigorate life into particular areas, we need to make sure that we're thinking about how do we make these attractive places that everyone can enjoy, that everyone can live in. Uh, the final thing I say, there's this really hot take on the concept of 15-minute cities, which I'm sure most people are familiar with now, right? Where the the whole idea is basically you can walk to most of your essential needs and services in 15 minutes, or they're a short bike or transit right away. And one of the things I love is someone said, that's great. I love being able to walk to my coffee shop, you know, that's a five-minute walk down the street. But if my barista who works at that coffee shop can't live within 30 minutes of the coffee shop, are we actually achieving our goals? Yeah, but that, that, that's exactly where the diverse retail, the diverse eateries, the diverse cultural comes from actually having diverse people living. And this is why I am so excited about the convergence of not only safer streets, walkable cities, more modes, but also releasing all of the car-centric space, the parking space back into residences. Because everywhere you attack one axis of this and just say, right, I'm going to make the streets nicer and I'm going to make it easier to cycle and I'm going to shut down the freeway. And then you get gentrification and pressure on house prices and then you, you, you force everyone out. But if all of that happened hand in hand with taking the fact that for every 200 square meter store, there is 600 square meters of parking. And you say, actually, I'm going to turn all of that back into residence and residential. As you make everything nicer, you blunt the gentrification forcing people out and you allow there to be a lot more people to live there without having to shove anyone out. You actually remove the tension and the pressure on unavailable property, scarce property in these dense areas. So I think if we're doing the improvements together, property prices will lift a bit, but by adding so much more property and permissions and permits to make property without parking, 
I think it won't be as bad as it has been previously where you've done improvements to an area and not not added it. I also think the taking out a freeway brings a sort of instinctive terror to anybody who's played SimCity. And what has been shown by some towns who have taken major multi-lane arterials out of the centre of their cities, they think this traffic is going to spill into all of these smaller roads and snarl up and everything's going to be dreadful and I'll be voted out of office. And we found that induced demand works in both directions. That if you provide lots of parking and lots of freeway lanes all the way through a city, then you induce a lot of cars. And you haven't taken cars from the roads around. You've actually induced more cars that weren't coming into the city before by adding these. But this is a two-way relationship. So where you strip out the parking and where you strip out the freeways, you find that you don't displace those vehicles into other parking spaces and other, other streets around. Those, those vehicles evaporate entirely. You gradually turn up the pain or the pressure on other roads around it. And so anybody who does have other transit options do move to those. And it's not that everybody has those other transit options, depending on where they're starting, depending on their level of mobility. Some people are going to stick to the cars, but anybody who is near enough to another transit option does move to them. And Paris found this very, very strongly during COVID, where they'd experimented with, as you were saying, some streets, some major arterials to be shut on weekends so people could walk along and have like uh, street fairs. And they permanently closed a number of roads to allow people who didn't want to be on underground public transit during the height of COVID to travel on bikes and foot. And cars didn't displace. They evaporated entirely and they've they've stuck to it. And I've seen the same thing start to happen in some US cities where they take arterials off the waterfront, which is absolutely prime space for human beings, and find that it doesn't melt down everything else in the city, as long as you are then building up the public transit options and the safer mobility options and segregated cycling and other mobility. And I really am very excited about these two things happening together. But um, what other things do you think might help nudge people who are in that band of movable choices? The people who are currently in a vehicle and as the city becomes more walkable and as the other mode options turn up, how are we going to nudge people from the vehicles into other mobility choices other than good hope? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I, I like to say we have a lot of low-hanging fruit. People that are on the fringes that live in places where they could get around by alternate modes, but they're just cars default because that is all they've ever known. And that is just kind of what's baked in. But I do think there are some measures that, that cities and communities can take to help encourage that. Some of it is as simple as education, right? Some people are just either unexperienced, they haven't been exposed, or they're just ignorant to cycling or taking public transit. And I don't mean ignorant in the sense that of a bad, bad thing, but just the system may meet some of their needs, but because there hasn't been a good public education campaign, or maybe riding the bus or the train seems intimidating because they maybe don't know how to plan a trip or they don't know how they pay. There are simple barriers sometimes that get in the way of deciding to make a different choice. So some of that is just like, well, you know, marketing and education campaign to show people, oh, actually, did you know you only live five minutes away from this bus route that runs every 10 minutes and it does take you to, you know, where you like to go on the weekends, right? And so I think it's beginning to just educate people on maybe 
you can't replace all of your trips in your car, but maybe you begin to replace some of them or depending on where you're going, it's just more convenient to bike, walk, or take transit. I do think we have to continually improve service on transit in particular. If we want people to make that decision to mode shift, the transit has to be consistently reliable and plentiful. You know, we're seeing a lot of cities think about their bus systems in particular, and maybe doing bus system redesigns where they go in and kind of reconfigure the routes. Maybe the routes haven't been touched in 50 years, but travel patterns and where people are going, when they want to go, where they want to go has changed. And looking at, well, can we reconfigure the bus system in a way that meets more of the travel patterns and demands of people today? And beyond that, can we also increase frequency, right? How often vehicles are coming. So looking at how to make the bus system more attractive and more frequent is another thing that can be done relative, and I shouldn't say it's easy, but relatively easy to say building a new subway line or a new light rail line, right? Those- yeah, as we all know, frequency is king. Almost everything to do with choice ridership is about frequency. The more you don't have to look at a timetable and just know you can rock up at a stop and there's another subway train or another bus along soon. And if for whatever reason one is taken out because of mechanical issues or anything else, if that's doubled my headways to 10 minutes, it's not the end of the world. If that's doubled my headways to two hours, then well, I'm not getting that job or I've lost a job or I haven't picked up my kids. You know, it, it, frequency really is killer if we're if we're gonna gonna make this work. But a lot of those are carrots in terms of carrot and stick. Do you think there's some stick that can be applied to really change how people get about in a high density city? So if 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 we have a city that's now being run by the new urbanists and we've added a lot in terms of safe ways to use alternative mobility and active mobility, and we've added a lot more frequency. How do we also start making people uncomfortable staying in the habits they were given from when they were young? How do we make them smart a little so that they will try a new thing? Yeah, I think it all comes down to you know how we incentivize different ways of travel. So if we're in this city where yes, the new urbanists have taken over and we have plentiful you know bike lanes and transit, one very real life example that hopefully will be implemented soon, we're seeing in New York City in Manhattan congestion pricing, right? And even in New York City, to a certain extent, it is still too easy to drive and park, even in Manhattan, which is one which of is the terrible places. to park in. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Even in Manhattan, one of the densest places on earth for some of the most valuable real estate where there is pretty great transit, at least in that part of the city. It's a great move by leadership of thinking, okay, we need to get more people on the buses and trains. And so dynamically pricing thinking about how we we charge people for driving and whether that's congestion pricing within that particular district, or even thinking about uh, road pricing, how far people are driving, vehicle miles traveled, which is a little bit controversial, but I think there are ways and mitigations to think about, you know, charging people based on maybe how much money they make or if they have to use a car for work and thinking and being sensitive to those subgroups that this could present a burden for. That's really what it comes down to is like, we, it is too easy and cheap to drive. Parking is too plentiful. And so I think in this new urbanist city, we certainly would do everything in our power to get rid of as much on-street parking as possible and charge you know, congestion pricing. The stick of congestion pricing and road pricing is something we're beginning to see really become part of the discourse in Europe, where previously there's been a vehicle tax and a gas tax, which pulls some money 
out of auto use to go to uh, pay for roads and other things. And a, a an incorrect assumption that the gas tax and the vehicle tax, the license tax, actually covers road provision, which it doesn't. This idea that public transit, by comparison, is some sort of socialist kind of uh, subsidized by the state, but vehicles are all paid for by the individual, when in reality, private vehicles especially are very highly subsidized by the state. Subsidized in terms of the provision of road and parking minimums, where it's subsidized by the state and subsidized by property developers, property owners, etc., but also the externalities of driving in terms of the health outcomes from burning gasoline in these uh, residential areas and the health outcomes from auto uh, wrecks, both for the drivers and for the vehicles they drive into and the pedestrians they drive into and the amount of safety infrastructure that's put in to try and prevent them driving into everybody. I think the more those externalities all start to get costed in, in a, a capitalist manner, directly to the drivers every time they take that choice. And so if when somebody has chosen to drive into Manhattan in a very, very large SUV with one human being inside, if more of those externalities are priced in, then the price comparison onto another mode then begins to be more real rather than heavily hidden. There might be another thing coming in, which is at the moment people buy a car and then ignore all their fixed costs of having a car, that they just think, I just have to have a car. And then they only think about their price of gas to drive in and out of somewhere and they ignore the insurance. Whereas if we get to the point of autonomous vehicles, which are simply summoned when you need them, then maybe your full cost per mile of the vehicle will then be seen as if every single journey you do is in a cab, rather than at the moment where people kind of own a car and therefore ignore all the fixed costs. And so between road pricing and autonomous vehicles, so if we can, in this urbanist-run city, if we can get people away from private vehicle ownership, is that also going to reduce the amount of single-occupant vehicle journeys that we're going to see? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. And, you know, I'll be honest, like personally, I am still skeptical on how far we're going to be able to go with autonomous vehicles. But certainly, we really need to think about how are we going to regulate and incorporate those into the environment. And seeing a future where, yeah, if choices are plentiful and people have the ability to walk by, take transit, or can summon a vehicle, well, then I'm sure a lot of people are going to think to themselves from a dollar and cents perspective, well, yeah, does it actually make sense for me to own my own vehicle? Or can I just summon the vehicle when I need it? Even today, where we don't have autonomous vehicles, there are different sort of car share programs that are out there, Zipcar, and we had like car to go And I know there's some others in Europe, but you know where people are going, well, if I can just get a car when I need it, when I need to drive far out into the suburbs, I want to take a road trip, then great. I don't need to, as you said, spend that money to buy and own a car and then all the other, the insurance and the maintenance and everything else, the parking you know, that comes with owning a car that we kind of just gloss over. So I think there's high potential there, but we need to make it once again, if and when we get to the point of having AV saturation, we just need to make sure that we are designing those programs and thinking about it in a way that we don't encourage ghost vehicles roving around, right? Because we do see this other phenomenon where we talk about like Ubers and Lyfts, right? Roving around town looking for riders. And we don't want to get to the point where we have now all these autonomous vehicles that are just driving around, you know, looking yeah, for riders. You're exactly right. And it's it's where the richest people in Manhattan and London 
pay a human chauffeur to just drive their car around waiting for them because it's cheaper than paying for parking. Uh, the moment that's an electric self-driving vehicle, the middle classes could access the same thing. And this is where I think the road pricing has to feature in not only kind of vehicle weight and vehicle size, but number of passengers, if possible, so that there is an enormous disincentive to deadheading to ghost vehicles or ghost journeys where the vehicle is cruising, waiting for something, and it, it wants to pull itself out of the high-density core as quickly as it can if it's got nobody inside it, because that's a really painful place for the whole city to be. I'm hugely encouraged about what we're going to see in the future as lurching, and maybe with a few false starts, we're going to pull back from auto-only or auto-centric design. One of the things we ask most of our uh, guests are for their pick, just from all the things going on, their boondoggle and their underdog. So the boondoggle is one idea or technology that you think is having too much money, effort, and oxygen expended on it and should just be put away for a bit, and the underdog that should receive that, that money and oxygen. I'd, l- I'd love to hear your pick of the idea of the day that you think is the white elephant for the time being. Well, so my boondoggle would definitely be Elon Musk, Tesla Tunnels, the boring company. <laughs> it's been fascinating to watch that idea sort of devolve as time has gone along. At first, it was like something that already exists, like personal rapid transit, PRT, little pods, you know, on skates, taking people around. And then it got downsized. And now it's just a car and like skids. And now it's just a regular car driving in a tunnel that seemingly has no real way for people to emergency evacuate out of it. So I don't know what happens if there's a battery car fire in a tunnel. But that has just really sucked oxygen out of the room and the Hyperloop as well. These things that, and this is not new, right? Humans have always been fascinated by sci-fi and technology and the promise of that, oh, you know, this is going to change everything. But the reality is we've seen time and time again that that doesn't really bear out. And I think that for communities that are trying to figure out, well, how do we change our mobility infrastructure? How do we figure out an alternative to driving? But, oh, traditional public transit is broken. Well, traditional public transit may not be broken. It's just that it's not getting the priority that it needs to be successful. And we're not supporting that land use that needs to be successful. So something like the Boring Company, that model, that just really rubs me the wrong way. One, it's not really efficient in terms of moving the numbers of people it needs to move. And it's not something that I think is sustainable and really going to be able to, to proliferate at the scale. You know, How does it scale? I was so surprised by it because the idea that public transit is broken can only possibly be a conclusion if you're staring at a hideously underfunded public transit. If you ever travel to the Far East, if you ever travel to a major European capital, to quote Enrique de Penaloza, who was a, a very forthright and mold-breaking mayor for the city of Bogota in Colombia. And he said, the measure of when you're a, a truly developed international business city is not when everyone has a car, it's when the bankers are on public transit. If you Absolutely. visit Seoul in South Korea, one of the most technologically forward and advanced cities you will ever encounter, with population densities that eclipse anything in North America. Even New York quails at the population density and the public transit density in that town and the sheer millions that are shifted in and out of the town, huge distances out to where people are coming in. Same in Singapore, same in Tokyo, same in London, all these places. And public transit absolutely does work. 
And anybody who says it's really busy, you just look at the sheer numbers, the density on it. And when you look at those densities, nothing magical can be done by a self-driving car which can shift that number of people in and out of a high-density city. And so mass transit, the geometry wins. You've got to be many, many people on a single vehicle to make it work on mass transit. But the, the weird juxtaposition is Hyperloop was never supposed to move people around cities. The original Hyperloop designs were all about saying, as we take the high-speed trains, these 300 miles an hour, 400 miles an hour, amazing pieces of engineering. The main inv invention, the main thing in these vehicles that makes them go fast are really, really good rails, followed by really, really good technology on the wheels. And that's allowing, without maglev, without anything like that, just really, really high-speed trains in Italy, in France, in China, in Japan. They're absolutely amazing for it. These are all about being better than aircraft being better than aircraft and jets in terms of getting you between the middle of cities, absolutely fantastic. And again, lots of people on one vehicle. And the idea is, as we start to approach the heating issues of these, if we put them in a concrete tube and reduce the air density, we could go even faster. And it's nothing to do with getting somebody from a convention center in LA to a, an airport. It's all to do with getting people a thousand miles between cities. So ramping them up and ramping them down over an incredibly long distance. And I'm just so surprised that what was actually a sound engineering next step for the gradual increase in, in vehicle speeds on high-speed long-distance rail somehow got turned into a way to stop basic commuter rail turning up in some of these cities in the USA. It's a, a complete red herring, and I'm just staggered. So that's your, your boondoggle. What about your underdog? Who or what or, or what concept should be should be getting the oxygen in the room that the boring company and Hyperloop have stolen? Yeah, underdog. There's two things and two approaches. So the first one, underdog is who is considered an urban planner and an urbanist. And I say that I am a person who I actually did not go to school for urban planning. The only degree I have is a Bachelor's of Arts in Music. And yet I'm in this field and thriving. And I say that to say, we have a lot of great people who have ideas about how they can make their communities better. And there's sort of been this reckoning of the practice of urban planning and some of its theories, and at least what it has traditionally been versus what it could be. So I'm encouraged by seeing sort of this rise in urbanists, particularly young people. We saw it with the incredible Facebook group, New Urbanist Means for Transparent Teens, along with urbanists that are now on TikTok and YouTube. And I think we really should be making sure that those people, we're paying attention to those people because they really are passionate and interested in how we shape our communities tomorrow. The second piece, and this is a technology piece that's not new, but I think it's an idea that deserves more oxygen. And that is automated light metro. And what I mean by that is, you know, basically the concept of a subway or a metro, but maybe not on the full scale of like a New York City subway. One prime example, the Vancouver SkyTrain. It is completely autonomous and driverless and as a result, they can run those trains every 90 seconds. And they don't necessarily have to build as long stations and platforms, which really eat into the cost, particularly when we're talking about tunneling and going underground with Metro. We saw the United States first fully automated Metro, Honolulu Skyline open recently. While that project has had you know, a history of cost overruns and some, some issues, I do think in the long run, it's going to be great for that city. And I think that's something that as we look to expand transit services more in the future, when we think about capacity and building, trying to control cost, 
looking at automated metro systems that we can build smaller and shorter stations and run trains way more frequently is definitely a technology that we should be thinking about. Okay. So more metro movers. Was that in Miami, the metro mover? Well, the metro mover, yeah. I mean, you could say that's a similar similar. It's very thing. small. But, very uh, small people mover technology. Yeah. And I guess uh, the final thing is that's interesting is we talk about AVs, though the one other example I had to bring up is in Jacksonville, Florida, the Jacksonville Transit Authority has their ultimate urban circulator project, which is fascinating because it, it is reusing people mover guideway that was built downtown and these elevated stations. And it's going to keep that infrastructure, but then look at how it can convert those trains into these little autonomous pods that ramp down to street level and then run in dedicated lanes, the same as you use for like BRT. While you know I'm somewhat skeptical, I'm also somewhat optimistic that this could be an interesting way to repurpose existing infrastructure, but also figure out how do you expand the footprint of transit in an urban environment and experiment with that autonomous technology. Because I do think there is a lot of potential in these pods running in dedicated lanes. So autonomous BRT, right? That I think that's something else that, that we can be thinking about. Ah, and mixed mode BRT, in and out of BRT to, to service down, you know, right in the core of a city where it might not be able to have dedicated grade separated lanes the whole time. We've, we've certainly seen that in many cities as BRT 1.5 kind of yes in and out. Well, that's, that's fantastic. We certainly, uh, Cambridge, UK has got guided busways to get them through a load of the countryside and then they come onto normal roads inside. I take your point on pulling the the new urbanistas and the numtots out from the fringes of commenting and early in their careers through into more of the management and, and project delivery and project scoping as time goes on. I certainly know we, we've we've a number of them at Masabi and we're seeing more getting hired into the agencies themselves, which is fantastic and I think is where where we're going to really start to see this change. Picking up on your point of uh, getting the the new people in, uh, just uh, some suggestions for other voices we should get on the show and, and hear what their, their thoughts are and what they're getting involved in. There's so many people out there now, but one voice that I think would be good to hear from is my friend, Christian Jeffers. Sometimes she goes by The Black Urbanist. She's got uh, just a perspective and a voice that should be heard. We talk about urban planning being very male-dominated, very white-centric. And I think just having a different voice, someone who doesn't identify those ways, is just important. Because as we think about the design and human-centered design, right? Like everything that we think about has sort of been based on this like average male typology, right? So I think having people who represent different, you know, gender, sexuality, racial uh, identities uh, on the show uh, will definitely be really helpful in how we expand our thinking about how we move forward. Definitely. I'll uh, send a message to Chris and uh, see if she wants to come on. And I'll double down on that, that more than half of all public transit users are not male. And exactly right. Many of the transit systems have been designed around the old fashioned 1950s, nine till five, five days a week. And ever since COVID, that's been utterly smashed. You know, there's lots of people with very variable work schedules and a lot of people, especially those who are not white male, nine to five, white collar worker, they need multi-point journeys at different times of day, not a standard tidal flow in and out of the city. And they need to carry different things. They need to meet different people. They need very much a different support in terms of fares and a different support in terms of routing. More than anything, they need storage. 
you know, so many people use a, an auto vehicle to move around. So they have their own portable base camp full of all the things they need for different things as a little kind of nest to drag with them. And some of the technology, I, I think the underdog technology that sometimes we need, we need sidewalks and we need storage lockers, really low tech stuff sometimes along with frequency. Definitely, I'll, uh, I'll speak to Chris and see if she wants to come on. That'd be fantastic. Thank you so much, Jerome. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on today. Are there any final points you'd like to make? The final thing I'll say is, at the end of the day, we need to make our cities the way we plan them, we think about them. We need to make them work for a variety of people and really centering that on, you know, how do we make technologies, policies, work for families, people with disabilities, women. That's where we need to think in the core that we are designing for humans, for humans, by humans, with the intent of human beings interacting. Because if you build for cars, all you're going to get is cars. And if you build for people, you'll bring about people. Brilliant. Well, that is a fantastic comment to end on. Let's build for the humans. It's a human life we want in the towns and cities. Thank you, Jerome. And I so look forward to meeting you again in the future. Thank you for having me on the show, Ben. Wow, what a journey. And I'm very hopeful for what the future will bring. I'm excited about making sure the 15-minute cities work for everybody that's going to give it the life. I love his view of the low-hanging fruit and helping really move the people who are ready to change how they travel and getting the carrots as well as the sticks right and making sure our transit is reliable and plentiful. Great words to apply to it. I fully agree with him on the boondoggle of Tesla tunnels. Nothing about Hyperloop is supposed to be used over short distances, if it's a real Hyperloop. And the idea of more autonomous light rails to give us high-frequency smaller vehicles at a lower cost is a great idea. Thank you so much to Jerome Horn, and I really would love to see his 10-year-old dreams become true one day and to see our new urbanists as the transit CEOs. Tune in next month for more on Transit Voices. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.